0: I'd like to add to Keith's greeting and my own greeting, my name's Aubrey, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's nice to be with you on this very foggy day, what in the world? I don't know if any of you have been watching the Netflix series, The Crown, this morning I thought, is this what happened in London, the fog? In one of the opening scenes of John's gospel, John the baptizer tells the reader, and this morning that you and me, we're the ones reading this, he tells the reader, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look at the Lamb. John, the the author of the gospel, tells you and me, Look at the Lamb. And then in the very next scene, the author of the gospel, speaking through John the baptizer. Again, John the baptizer, he's standing with two of his followers, and Jesus comes walking by, and John looks at him, and then he looks at his followers, and he says the same thing to those two men that he told you and I, the reader, a few verses earlier. He tells them, behold the Lamb of God. Look at the Lamb. And so they do. They look up. They behold Jesus. They see Jesus walking by and they follow after him. And Jesus stops, as would be very natural if two people are following you. He looks at these guys and he says, what can I do for you? And they reply reply basically, John told us that you were somebody we should pay attention to. Can we? Can, Can we spend some time with you and pay attention and listen to you? And Jesus' response is, come and see. And they do. They catch up to him. They walk with him while he's headed toward his home. And they spend that afternoon. And apparently, they stay at his house that night. The next day, Jesus abruptly summons a man by the name of Philip to follow him. Philip does. Philip has apparently a remarkable experience because he immediately goes out and finds his friend Nathaniel, And he declares, without any evidence or explanation, we have found the one about whom Moses wrote in the law and also the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Now, Nathaniel, unlike everybody else up to this point, he says, no, wait a minute. Nazareth. I mean, I've been to Stanton. Can anything? Good. No, I'm messing with you up. He does. He's from a neighboring town that's probably got about 1,000 or 1,200 people. Nazareth has a couple of hundred people, and he looks down on it. um, And he basically says, can anything worthwhile come out of an insignificant village like Nazareth? And Philip simply replies to him, come and see. So John's gospel, think about this. It begins with a prologue, verses 1 to 18. And then it's immediately followed by four scenes, each one of which contains the same invitation. Behold Jesus. Come and see Jesus. Look at Jesus. Come and see Jesus. So the opening chapter of John's gospel... Starts with a prologue, a preamble, an overture, uh, the theme, it it sketches out the theme of the whole. And then it goes into these four vignettes. And in each vignette, there is this invitation to turn your attention, your sight, your imagination, your heart, your eyes, your ears toward Jesus to come to him and see for yourself. This is God's invitation to everyone and each one of us in this room. Children, teenagers, adults. This is God's invitation to Elias. Come and see Jesus. To Joetta, come and see Jesus. Behold Jesus. Turn toward him. Put your trust in him. Jesus is inviting each one of us. Into friendship. Each one of us. To discover for ourselves. Little by little. Who Jesus is. That's how John opens his gospel. And you get to the end of chapter 1, and there are these five guys who have taken Jesus up on his offer to come and see, to come and learn little by little, to follow him, to learn from him, to enter into a friendship with him, to enter into a personal relationship of intimacy with him. Five guys, the original five guys. I don't know what they ate. That was good, wasn't it? You like that? So these original five guys, they accept the invitation. And what is the first thing Jesus does with these guys? How does he start teaching them about himself? A retreat? An extended time of prayer? Sit down and open your Bibles and let me teach you Torah? No, What's the first thing he does with them? What's this initiating move with them? A week-long party. This is a typical Middle Eastern wedding. Last a week. It's a feast. This is what we heard in our gospel reading this morning. John chapter two, verses 1 to 12. Jesus invites these five men to follow him. They do, and the first thing He does is take them to a party, a week-long party. And what does Jesus do at this party, at this wedding feast? I think he did what David Cooper does at weddings. Those who are laughing have seen the video. Those who aren't laughing, ask anybody who is how to find it on YouTube. No, 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 no. Imagine, this is David for those of you who don't know who to look at right now. Standing in a room packed with people with his hands jumping up and down to throbbing bass music at a wedding party that a whole group of our church were at. That's what Jesus did. You shouldn't imagine him sitting over in the corner with a serious face talking quietly about deep things to one or two people. Who wants to invite that guy to a party? No, here is Jesus drinking and dancing and singing and rejoicing. So that's the invitation. Behold Jesus. Come and see him. And what do you see first? When John's gospel invites you to see Jesus, the first thing you see is Jesus laughing and telling jokes and having fun and singing and celebrating and dancing, celebrating love and married love and erotic love and romance and friendship and companionship and the union of friends. You see Jesus deeply affirming wild delight. He's affirming those great moments in life where we get to press pause on the dailiness and the weariness of life in order to celebrate the good gifts of taste buds and rhythm, friendship, and romance, joy, and fun. That is the first thing we see when we look at Jesus. But there's more. At some point in this week-long festival of love and friendship, the wine runs out. And this isn't just an inconvenience. In the Middle East, this was customary for the bridegroom to take care of. It's the opposite. In America today, the culture, the traditional culture, is that the bride's family... Covers the bulk of the cost of the wedding. But in ancient Middle Eastern peasant culture, the custom was that the bridegroom hosted not just one evening soiree, but a week long feast. And the root of the word feast here is drinking a party. And so in this honor and shame culture, it was not only embarrassing to run out of wine, it was a social disaster. It was that worst of all experiences, disgraceful. The family would have lived in shame for a long time to come. And so the second thing these five men see, after they see Jesus' rhythm, after they see him joking and laughing and having fun, quite different, isn't it, from John, ascetic, in the wilderness, all fasting, camel hair, locusts. No, they're in a whole different world now. And the second thing they see... Is that Jesus cares. He has compassion. He rescues this young couple. He rescues their family. He rescues them from humiliation. By providing an insane amount of wine. Something like 150 gallons of wine. That is of a striking Quality. This is not two-buck chuck. This isn't even the stuff on the top shelf at Martin's. This is 150 gallons. That's something like 750 bottles. We're talking about nearly 4,000 glasses of something that you have to a special order through downtown wine and gourmet. Not just joy, but compassion and extravagant help. The invitation to come and see Jesus for yourself. This is who you're being invited to see. This is who you're being invited into a relationship with. And then we get to the end of the story and we read in verse 11, John chapter 2, verse 11, this the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So there's more. There's more than just what happens on the literal level of the events of the plot. There's more here than joy, and there's even more here than compassion. You get to the end of the story, and you're told, look deeper than the literal. Scratch around, follow the clues. This is a sign. So Jesus is taking his disciples to this feast, this wedding party, and he's performing this miracle, and even more than the joy, even more than the compassion and the care, there's something else. You're told at this point, there's more here than meets the eye. There's something that reveals a deeper truth. What is the sign pointing to? To what is the signpost of this joy and this care Well, John makes you work for it. Think of his gospel like a treasure hunt. He's laid out careful and sometimes cryptic clues that he expects you to do some work. To follow. You see, he wants you as the reader to actually engage the way the followers of John the baptizer had to physically engage. They had to actually do something. They had to actually move toward Jesus physically. And he's wanting you, the reader, to experience something like that expenditure of energy. You too have to follow if you want to see. Notice the very first phrase of our story, John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there is a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The third day. Oh, that's a clue. John wants us to see the significance of the miracle, and he's giving us clues. In fact, he's been preparing us for this moment since the end of the prologue. Go back to John chapter 1. In verses 19 through 28, John the baptizer is talking with some friends from Jerusalem and he's baptizing. And then in verse 29, we read, the next day. He saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now drop down to verse 35. Again, this phrase comes up, the next day. Then in verses 40 through 42, we have another day. And then in verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. So John organizes, after the prologue, the initial actions of Jesus around a series of days. How many? Oh, you got to work for it. Verses 19 to 28, this is the first day. Verses 29 to 34, this is the second day. Verses 35 to 39, this is a third day. Verses 40 to 42, this is a fourth day. Verses 43 to 51, this is a fifth day. And then apparently they travel on the sixth day because it says on, the, on that in verse 43, the next day he began to travel toward Galilee. And then the next thing we're told is on the third day after that, So if you start out traveling on the fifth day, what is the third day after that? The fifth day is the first of the day of travel. The sixth day is the seventh, second of the days of travel. So what day of the week does the wedding occur on? The seventh day. John has left us these clues to see that the wedding occurs on the seventh day. So this is the first week in the life of Jesus' ministry. And John tells us that the wedding occurs on the third day of a journey, a journey which began on the fourth day of the week. So the wedding occurs on the third day of a journey, which is the third seventh day of the week. Now there's only one other time in John's gospel that he maps out a week. It's at the end. And at the end of John's gospel, covering the last week of Jesus' life, what happens on the third day of Jesus' final journey? He rises from the dead on the seventh day of the week. So the miracle of the wedding at Cana occurs on the third day of a journey, which is Sunday. And then at the end of John's gospel, we're told about the seventh sign, which occurs on the third day of a journey, which is Sunday you got to work for it. He wants you to follow Jesus. To scratch your way through the literature. Why? Because he is able in this way to achieve a remarkable density of meaning. Meanings that are layers upon layers. You get through this first story and you think, really cool. Jesus turned water into wine. And then you get to the end and you're told, oh, you think that was cool. Follow where it points. He's telling a story in a way that offers you a real depth of meaning, layers of significance. If you will take the time to follow the clues so that if it's not on your first reading of John's gospel or your fifth or your tenth, But on your hundredth reading, that the fog begins to clear and you see what the sign is pointing at. Remember I said it was a custom of this culture for the bridegroom to supply the wine at a wedding feast? Well, in John chapter 3, the next chapter, John explicitly calls Jesus the bridegroom. And so after multiple readings, once you've learned that Jesus is the bridegroom, you see that even before he's explicitly identified as the bridegroom in chapter 3, he's acting like the bridegroom in chapter 2. He's already fulfilling the role of the bridegroom. He's providing the wine. He's taken over the responsibilities of the bridegroom. And what a tremendous bridegroom he is. Overflowing with abundance. Overflowing with joy. Overflowing with love. The invitation to come and see Jesus. To enter into a relationship with him. A relationship of intimacy and friendship. The invitation to turn your life in trust toward Jesus. In love of him. In union with him, it is an invitation into the life of heaven. In John's gospel, the miracles, he doesn't ever use the word miracle. He calls all of them, of which there are seven in his gospel, signs. They are moments when heaven is open. When the transforming power of God's love breaks into the present world. These are moments when the power and love of heaven overlap and burst into the dailiness and darkness of life now. And the invitation for you is to enter into a relationship of love and trust and intimate friendship with Jesus. And when you do, when you, like these five men, when you accept the invitation, you too will get to experience the life of heaven breaking into your own life in strange and surprising ways, Jesus still has this power and this love and this compassion. This is what He offers when you come into the realm of friendship with Jesus. He still takes the water of your life and turns it into wine. This is we were singing a little over earlier. Strength will wi- rise as we wait upon the Lord, and then there's that line. There's that line. You comfort those in need. You lift us up on eagle's wings. Don't you think that original bridegroom felt that in that moment of utter humiliation? Can you see how Jesus lifted him up literally in a culture of honor and shame? He was lifted up. His head wasn't downcast. Instead, he was walking around like the cock of the walk, right? Like a peacock. Look at all that wine. Oh, yeah. uh huh. Come to my parties. That's the way it is. Do you see how instead of his family being shamed, Jesus, coming into this man's life, lifted him to honor. And he still does that today. When Mike Trainham walked into a friendship with Jesus, Jesus took away Mike's shame. He forgave him of all his sins, which was a lot in this situation. <laughs> Any more than for you. Isn't this wonderful? One of the things you get when you get in a relationship with Jesus. One of the things about heaven is gracious forgiveness. Fixing your mess ups. Lifting your head out of the shame of your failures. Whether they were intentional or unintentional. Lifting your head up. By giving you instead Jesus' extravagant accomplishments. But it's not only that. So many people in this room, you've experienced incredible, personal, intimate, existential experiences of Jesus. Last week, on Saturday, a young woman sensed very deeply that God was telling her to open her Bible and read. She opened it up, and the passage she read was the last story of John chapter 1. She said to God, I don't understand this. Why is he talking about the 10th hour? And she asked a series of questions about the end of John's gospel. The next day, for the first and only time in her life, she visited this church. And when the gospel was read, it was the exact passage she had read the night before. She said she was thunderstruck. So she immediately took out her phone and started recording because she thought, God is about to answer my questions. And then my sermon was structured around the question she had asked. This is remarkable. And how many of us in this room, at some point in our life, as we've walked in intimate friendship with Jesus, have experienced his kindnesses and his graces and his actual personal attentive care? He's a bridegroom, he loves us. This is remarkable. Later in John's gospel, Jesus tells us that he came here so that we can live, really live, live lives of abundance, to have life in all of its fullness. Maybe this afternoon or later this week, you could take the Bible and you could open it to this passage, John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And you could read through the story, praying along the way, praying through the story with your own failures and disappointments in mind. Remembering that transformation only comes when someone took Mary's word seriously. Do whatever he tells you. I said earlier that John's gospel reveals its treasures, not on the first or even the hundredth reading, but it, 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 it opens up to us when we aggressively pursue over and over, when we take the time to really follow the clues. And when we do, there's yet an even another, even another layer of meaning I would like to open up for us before we finish. Look again at John chapter 2, verse 10. Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drank freely, drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, this is the master of the feast talking to the shamed bridegroom who's suddenly been lifted up, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now, this is irony, right? The master of the feast doesn't know. Actually, he didn't. He didn't have anything to do with this. The master of the feast doesn't know that he didn't keep any good wine until now. He had no more. This particular bridegroom, this particular Middle Eastern peasant man, getting married on this particular occasion, he didn't save the best for last. He ran out. But in a delicious turn of irony, What the master of the feast said to the bridegroom was true of the real bridegroom, Jesus. Jesus saves the best for last. The better wine comes later. In fact, in John's gospel, this is just a sign pointing to the end of John's gospel. Oh, you think this is good? Wait until wine shows up again. And this time it's sour. And Jesus is hanging on a cross. And when we look at that moment with the eyes of faith. Who have been calibrated all through John's gospel. To see, to really see. We see that as good as it was at Cana. It gets even better at the end. The miracle at Cana is only a foretaste of Jesus' future Glory. It takes the entire Gospel of John to prepare us for the ultimate moment when heaven and earth will overlap, when the glory of God is revealed ultimately in the dying and rising of Jesus Christ. You see, even in John's Gospel, the better wine comes at the end but we're not there yet we're headed there over the next weeks and months to come we we hope to get ourselves in a place where we can see how all of the life of heaven depends on the cross and the resurrection to break into this world today we will see how all of Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection and the transformation of this dead body into a living body we'll see how all of this makes it possible for all things to be made new. A little earlier, Micah Wickline read to us from another book that John wrote, the Book of Revelation, chapter nineteen. And in that passage, it wasn't Micah. It was supposed to be. Elias took over. You handed off Micah to the older brother. Okay, because it was embarrassing. Does this help the way? No. Okay. <laughs> In that passage that Elias read to us, we heard about the wedding feast of a lamb, of the lamb to which all are invited. It's the wedding feast to which the entire story of the Bible points. Remember the passage also that Rose read from Amos chapter 9, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. Our final destiny is the marriage feast of the Lamb of God when God will be all in all and we will rise up in his glorious presence and be held in his intimate love. You see, Jesus is saving the better wine for last. As joyful as you are now, As joyful as the most joyful moment on the most joyful day of your life is now. It is a shadow. It is an hors d'oeuvre. It doesn't compare. That moment when some of you held a child that you created. And you thought your heart would burst if it got any more excited. You're going to need a different kind of heart to contain. A whole new level of joy. A whole new level of beauty requires a whole different type of eye. A whole deeper level of intimacy requires a more physical body. He's saving the better wine for last. By comparison... The best moment of your life that you've ever experienced, the most fun, the most joy, the most love, the most held, the most intimate, the most compassion, the most cared for, the most center of attention you've ever experienced in your life. It is only water. By the power of the bridegroom, there's better wine coming. He will take this earth and transfigure it into fine, well-aged wine. But, and this is absolutely essential, you cannot expect to enjoy this great feast, the wine of love and joy, unless you accept the invitation to come and see Jesus. Notice how our gospel passage ends. John chapter 2 verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. It's a puny translation. Literally believed into him. It's not about merely saying in your mind, oh... This kind of joy, this kind of love, this kind of compassion, this kind of kindness, this kind of free pass, this kind of acceptance. Oh, yeah, I could hang out with Jesus. No. To feel what's going on here, the sense of it, you need to translate it more like, and his disciples put their trust in him. Or... They entrusted themselves to him. So we're back where we started. Verse 12. After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. The gospel of John is an invitation to come to Jesus. It's an invitation into the friendship that Jesus offers you with himself. It's an invitation into intimacy. There is a friend. That sticks closer than a brother. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is inviting each one of us. Into a friendship with himself. CJ. Parker. Christine. Each one of us. The gospel of John. Is the God of the universe saying to Anita. Anita. Come to me in friendship. Enter into my love. Turn toward Jesus in an act of trust. Come to Jesus and learn little by little what real life is. How real love can go all the way into the dailiness and darkness of your living and transfigure it. To enter into a personal relationship with Jesus, to follow him through the dailiness of life. To enter into a relationship with him, to receive his love. Who wouldn't want this? Who wouldn't want this God's friendship? You've got to be crazy not to want it. I invite you. Take a step toward Jesus, another step. Learn to reach out to him this week. Will you spend time with him? Will you read scripture? Will you pray to him as one friend talks to another, knowing it's the real you he loves? This is the invitation. It's to the feast of friendship. Let's pray.